had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread. Then whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Well, that's not quite right. There was an old woman, but she didn't live in a shoe. She lived in her own house with a black funeral wreath on the door. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and let's see if we can find that old woman. How about this one? There was an old woman on skin and bones. She lived down by the old graveyard. One night she thought she'd take a walk. She walked down by the old graveyard. Well, that one does have a funereal aspect to it, but that's not quite right either. How about this? There was an old woman tossed up in a blanket Seventeen times as high as the moon But where she was going no mortal could tell it For under her arm she carried a broom Or this There was an old lady who swallowed a fly I don't know why she swallowed the fly Perhaps she'll die Okay, that one really doesn't fit because it's there was an old lady, not there was an old woman. But the perhaps she'll die may fit, perhaps she will, or perhaps someone else will. The point here, insofar as I have a point, is that there are a number of folk tales or folk songs or nursery rhymes that begin with there was an old woman. So to name a story there was an old woman doesn't have to apply particularly to any one of them. It just rings a bell in our heads, makes things seem familiar. Which is a nice way to start, because very soon, familiar things are going to be turned on their heads. So there was an old woman. What? Here's our intro. No props this time. No set. Just Hitch with his hands in his pockets. Good evening. I have a request for those of you who are not watching television. Please turn on your set. I'm sure I look much worse in the flamboyant technicolor of your imagination than I do in the austere black and white of television. Thank you. I'm sure that's much better, although it may still be one color too many. Black and white are very fitting this evening. As a matter of fact, we considered edging the entire picture in black, but we gave that up. It would have been decidedly unfair to those of you with very small picture tubes or narrow imagination. Tonight's fable is about Mundy Lawton, a nice little old lady with a penchant for funerals. You shall learn more about Miss Lawton after our sponsor gives this brief but heartfelt eulogy in behalf of his product. A couple of things here. First of all, we got the entire Hitchcock intro this time, which is a nice change. We'll get the entire outro, too. And secondly... Note how Hitch refers to our lead character as Mundy Lawton when everybody in the episode refers to her as Monica Lawton. So what's up with that? 
My first thought was that maybe Monday is an archaic designation like good wife or goody, but I've looked it up a little bit and know that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think what's going on here is that the intro was filmed before the actual episode, and the character's name in the script was Monday, but was changed to Monica. It could be that the character's name in the short story is Monday, but I can't check on that. Why? I'll get to that in just a minute. So here's There Was an Old Woman, first broadcast on March 18th, 1956, starring Estelle Winwood, teleplay by Marion Cockrell, based on a story by Jerry Hackady and Harold Hackady, and directed by Robert Stevenson. Now, it will become clear just a few minutes into this episode that it also stars Charles Bronson. So why didn't I mention Charles when I went through the introduction? Well, I try to be precise, or perhaps to put it another way, I'm pedantic. If that isn't the correct word, I'm sure all the pedants out there will let me know. And I only list the people that are listed on the opening credits in the actual show, in my opening credits. So Charles didn't make the cut. Only Estelle Winwood did. Just as Charles didn't make the cut five episodes ago, when he also starred in And So Died Rhea Bashinska. We talked about Charles at length in that episode, so we won't talk about him again. But he is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The Woman Who Wanted to Live, episode 18 of season 7. Has he made enough of a name for himself by then to get to the top of the title card? Yes, he has. And yes, he does. There are a couple of more people we have met before and that we've already talked about. This is the third teleplay by Marion Cockrell after Into Thin Air and Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid. She has eight more episodes after this. Her next, co-written with her husband Francis, who also directs, is episode number 26, our very next episode, Who Done It? This is the fifth episode directed by Robert Stevenson after Don't Come Back Alive, The Long Shot, The Derelicts, and And So Died Rhea Bashinska. He only has two more as he's about to embark on his great Disney career. His next is Mink, episode number 36. There are only five people in this episode, only five people we can see, plus a cat we can see, plus some mice we can't see. And I've already set Charles Bronson aside. So why don't we talk about each of the others at the moment we first meet them and get all the bios out of the way. And I'm sorry, I don't have a bio for the cat. Oh, and there's the two brothers who wrote the short story. Jack Seabrook says, Marion Cockrell's teleplay was based on an unpublished story, which is why I can't check to see if Monica's name is Mundy in the story, by Jerry Hackady and Harold Hackady. Jerry was born in Connecticut and died in Florida. I have been unable to find any published writing credited to him. IMDb shows that he had a brief career in television as an actor in a few shows in 1952 and 1953, and as a writer of this Hitchcock episode and of an episode of Lights Out in 1951. Both of Jerry's TV writing credits list Harold as co-writer. Harold had a longer career in show business than did Jerry, writing for TV and film from 1950 to 1971, and finding success as a lyricist for Broadway shows, where he was better known as Hal Hackady. 
Neither Jerry nor Hal have any other credits on the Hitchcock TV show. Wikipedia says about Hal that he was the screenwriter for the B-movies capitalizing on the rock and roll craze Let's Rock, Senior Prom, and Hey Let's Twist, which earned him a Writers Guild of America nomination for Best Written Musical. His theatrical shows include Minnie's Boys, a musical about the Marx Brothers, Teddy and Alice, about Teddy Roosevelt and his daughter, and Blockheads, which was based on Laurel and Hardy. He also wrote the lyrics for the Eddie Fisher 1956 hit, Without You. There'll never be a love for me without you. The dreams I dream all seem to be about you. As well as the lyrics for Shake Me, I Rattle, Squeeze Me, I Cry, originally recorded in 1957 by the Lennon sisters. Shake me, I rattle, squeeze me, I cry, as I stood there beside I could hear a sigh Shake me, I rattle Squeeze me, I cry Please take me home And love me That song is about a doll that wants to be taken home from a toy store, if you're wondering. He also wrote the lyrics for Kites, which was first recorded by the Rooftop Singers, but then became a top 10 hit in Britain in 1967 for Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. But perhaps his best-known song, at least to people in the New York City area, was Let's Go Mets, the New York Mets theme song during their World Series winning season of died in 2015 at the age of 93. 
Jerry Hackadee was the younger brother, and it appears that he mostly came along for the ride. As Jack Seabrook said, he only has one other writing credit on IMDb besides this Hitchcock episode. It's an episode of Lights Out, The Fonceville Curse, which was also written with his brother. And he appeared in three episodes of Studio One in Hollywood, Hold Back the Night, Little Man, Big World, and The Laugh Maker. He's also in an episode of the TV series Stanley, and he's in the film Let's Rock, which was written by his brother. But nothing after 1958, and Jerry Hackadee died in 2005 at the age of 81. So the episode opens up with a close-up of a door which has a black wreath on it. The camera pulls back and shifts a bit to accommodate Miss Monica Lawton, who is coming out of the adjoining door. And Monica is played by our lead, Estelle Winwood. In his IMDb mini-biography, Tony Fontana writes, When Estelle saw the girl on a white horse at the circus, she then decided that she wanted to be an actress. And she was, from the age of five, to the disapproval of her father. Her mother had her trained with the Liverpool Repertory Company, and Estelle performed in many plays and many roles in the West End. In 1916, she made her debut on Broadway and worked with a number of acclaimed stage actors. Estelle spent the rest of the teens and 20s working in plays on both sides of the Atlantic. Being an actor in the theater, Estelle was not about to be one of those who acted in flicks and held out for a very long time. Wikipedia says she was born Estelle Ruth Goodwin, and that she finally relented and made her film debut in Night Angel, 1931, but her scenes were cut before the film's release. Her official film debut came in The House of Trent, 1933, and Quality Street, 1937, was her first role of note. She was already in her 50s by that time. She made no cinematic films during the 1940s, but expressed a willingness to participate in the new medium of television. Starring in a television production of Blythe Spirit in 1946, she played Madame Arcati, the same role that Mildred Natwick played on Broadway. During this time, she performed on stage in Ten Little Indians, Lady Windermere's Fan, The Mad Woman of Shiloh, The Merry Wives of Windsor, and The Importance of Being Earnest, which she also directed. On television, she worked on Dennis the Menace, Dr. Kildare, Love American Style, Police Story, The FBI, The Man from Uncle, and The Girl from Uncle. When they get back in the house, I'll take care of the girl. And you, Treacle, can kill Cousin Mark. No, but Mommy. There's been too much shilly-shallying. We haven't got time to arrange for another fatal accident. She's in the suspense episode, The Rose Garden, along with Mildred Natwick, the Lights Out episode, Mask, which was written by Harold Hackety, the thriller episode, Dialogues with Death, along with Norma Crane, and the Twilight Zone episode, Long Live Walter Jameson. Don't pretend. I know who you are. And who am I? You're Tom Bowen, my husband. Your husband? My dear woman, perhaps if you'll tell me who you're looking for. Oh, stop it. I saw the picture in the newspaper announcing your engagement. I had to come to see if it was true. It is. I can't explain it. I only know it's happened. I've grown old, and you haven't. She's Aunt Enchantra in an episode of Bewitched. Be careful. 
Blackwall. She's just a baby. Well, we haven't lost a patient yet, dear. 308 years certifying witches. <laughs> and she's Marcia, Queen of Diamonds, Aunt Hilda in five episodes of Batman. Double, double, toil and trouble. Bubble, bubble. <laughs> An ocean potion for making a commotion. <laughs> I have a potion that will do anything you want it to. Really, Aunt Hilda? Don't you think you're carrying this thing a bit too far? Can't you let an old lady have a little fun? You go right ahead, darling, and have all the fun you want to. Just as long as your potions keep getting results. Remember, I was chemistry professor at Vassar for 20 years, dearie. I remember. I also remember they fired you. Yes, I tried one of my potions in the college cafeteria and it turned the entire student body orange for a week. Her films include Darby O'Gill and the Little People, The Misfits, The Magic Sword, Camelot, and The Producers. Hold me. Touch me. Not in the hole. Of which she later said, Oh, that dreadful picture. I can't bear to watch it, even on a small television. I must have needed the money. Living in Hollywood weakens one's motives. It reminds me of the saying that nobody ever went broke underestimating the American public's taste. Her last film appearance was in 1976's Murder by Death, in which, at the age of 92, she played Elsa Lanchester's nursemaid. Are you all right, Miss Withers? Mm. Do you want your medicine now? Mm. Her last television role was in an episode of Quincy, which aired on her 97th birthday. And speaking of lasts, she was in the last episode of Perry Mason, an episode entitled The Case of the Final Fade-Out, in which she played a second defendant. Just a few more items about Estelle. Her first husband, Arthur Chesney, was the brother of Edmund Gwen, whom we've seen in The Trouble with Harry, and whom we will see in Father and Son, episode 36 of season 2. Estelle's best friend from the 1920s until her death in the 1960s was Tallulah Bankhead. She, Tallulah, and actresses Eva Le Gallienne and Blythe Daly were dubbed the Four Riders of the Algonquin in the early silent film days because of their appearances together at the Algonquin Roundtable. When she was 95 years old, she admitted on the Merv Griffin show that she smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. And when she turned 100 and was asked how she felt to have lived so long, she said, How rude of you to remind me. By the way, director George Cukor died only hours after sending her a telegram for her 100th birthday. And let's not forget the ode on Estelle on Mystery Science Theater 3000. As you guys, I'm sure, remember... I think it was maybe last December I fell pell-mell for Kim Cattrall. <laughs> yeah, we remember. Please don't remind us. <laughs> but now I'm over that. Well, that's good. We had a little spat. <laughs> In your dreams, buddy. I'm older, wiser, and I know that my true love is really named. Estelle. Winwood? She's swell. <laughs> She's cute. 
She's Rudy Toot Toot. I bet she smells like Juicy Prune. She can really play a witch. She was even on Bewitched. And I'm bewildered and bothered. Estelle is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents Bull in a China Shop. Episode 26 of Season 3. And Estelle Winwood died in 1984 at the age of 101. And so, as our story opens, Miss Monica steps out of her front door and she says, Morning, Theodore. Theodore is the milkman, and the two of them have the following conversation. Morning, Miss Monica. It's another your picture book mornings, ain't it? Yes, indeed, a picture book, David. Most bracing. I only wish Oscar could have seen it. Oh, that's too bad, Miss Monica. I sure am sorry. Oscar, did you say? Did he suffer much? Oh, no, no, no. One last convulsion and he was gone. Sizzle is dreadfully cut up. They were to be married, you know. I fear it won't be long before she follows him to the grave. Just pining away, is she? Uh, Miss Monica, did you want anything extra? Oh, yes. Half a pint of cream with all these people around. Oscar was quite wealthy, you know. Brings out the relatives. Yes, ma'am, I guess it would. Well, goodbye, Miss Monica. Good day, Theodore. Now, Theodore doesn't seem particularly concerned by all this. He seems to take it in stride. I mean, after all, didn't Oscar just die? One last convulsion and he was gone? So what does this mean? Who is Oscar? The sense at this point, I think, particularly since Miss Monica asked for extra cream for her guests, is that Oscar was a cat. But you would think that even if Oscar was a pet rather than a human being, that Theodore would express a lot more sympathy than he does. In any event, Theodore leaves, Miss Monica goes back into the house, and the camera once again focuses nice and close on the black wreath on her door. Theodore is played by Dabs Greer, and Dabs Greer is probably familiar to most of us because he appeared in over 100 films and over 600 episodes of television. He was born Robert William Greer in Fairview, Missouri, the son of a speech teacher and a druggist. At the age of eight, he began acting in children's theater productions. He was still in Missouri in 1938 when Hollywood came around to film Jesse James and he made his film debut. He told the Neosho Missouri Daily News in 2002 they were paying $5 a day, a day, to local people for being extras. That was really good money in those days, more money than we had seen in a long time. He attended Drury College in Springfield, Missouri, and he headed the drama department and the Little Theater in Mountain Grove, Missouri, from 1940 to 1943. But in 1943, he moved to Pasadena, where he was an administrator and acting instructor at the Pasadena Playhouse. And he began getting roles in television and films. He appeared in the very first episode of The Adventures of Superman, and he was the first person ever to be saved by Superman. He had recurring roles in Gunsmoke, Hank, and The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. And he was cast as a minister more than once. He was the minister who performed the marriage of Rob and Laura Petrie on The Dick Van Dyke Show and of Mike and Carol Brady on The Brady Bunch. And he was Reverend Henry Novotny, in Picket Fences, and Reverend Robert Alden in Little House on the Prairie. He also appeared in eight episodes of Perry Mason, House of Wax, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, three episodes of Science Fiction Theater, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, two episodes of The Twilight Zone, Hocus Pocus and Frisbee, and Valley of the Shadow, two episodes of The Outer Limits, Children of Spider County, 
and the Inheritors, and the film I Want to Live, in which he plays the captain at San Quentin Prison. When you hear the pellets drop, count ten. Take a deep breath. It's easier that way. How do you know? He's also the elderly version of Tom Hanks's character, death row guard Paul Edgecombe, in The Green Mile. One of his odder credits was in the Albert Brooks short film, Black Vet, a spoof of a promo for an upcoming NBC television series, originally shown in the first season of Saturday Night Live. Black Vet. A young black veteran from the Vietnam War returns and takes up practice as a veterinarian in a small southern town. He and his family find acceptance difficult. Now, if he's going to have to be operated on, quite frankly, Duke doesn't want you to do it. You mean I'm good enough to board this dog while you're out of town, but I'm not good enough to operate? Is that what you're saying to me? Well, I don't have anything to do with it. It's his choice. So where does the name Dabs come from? Well, it was his mother's maiden name. He is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Belfry, episode number 33. And Dabs Greer died in 2007 at the age of 90. That shot of the black wreath on Miss Monica's door dissolves into a close-up of two hands, a cup of coffee, and a Danish. The hands rip off a piece of the Danish, dip it in the coffee, and then raise it up to the hand's owner's mouth. The camera follows the hands, and we see that it's Charles Bronson, with Norma Crane standing behind him. Now, this may be a bit reminiscent of our last episode, The Perfect Murder, where we had a lot of moments of dishes and food and drinks. But the pie lady points out that the first thing we saw of Charles Bronson in And So Died Rhea Bushinska were also his hands, lifting a cup of coffee and revealing his face. It may not be a coincidence that And So Died Rhea Bushinska was also directed by Robert Stevenson. It also may not be a coincidence that the transition goes from a funeral wreath to some food, specifically a pastry, considering what happens later on. As he's eating the Danish, Charles turns to Norma and speaks to her. If your brother doesn't come through, we keep on hitchhiking. So if you want to travel more elegant, you better give him a real good pitch. Now, yeah, reverse the charges and make a person a person. Why don't you put the touch on some of your relatives? Why don't you stop asking stupid questions? Just do like I tell you. Charles gives Norma some of his Danish. No, who am I kidding? He gives her a dime to use the payphone in the drugstore that they're in. And you can tell right away just from this short conversation that they're down on their luck and that Charles's character is not a particularly nice guy. Now, as she goes to the phone to call her brother, let's take a look at Norma Crane. She was born Norma Anna Bella Zuckerman in New York City but was raised in El Paso, Texas. IMDb says she was raised by her aunt after her mother died giving birth to her, but I haven't seen that verified anywhere else. She studied drama at Texas State College for Women in Denton and was later a member of Ilya Kazan's Actor Studio. She made her Broadway debut in Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Her television and film careers span from 1951 to 1974, but sadly, Norma didn't live particularly long. During that time, however, she was in a number of programs and films, including two episodes of One Step Beyond, an episode of Riverboat, the Man from Uncle episode, The Matterhorn Affair. Is this the clump residence? Uh, what is it? Clump, is this the clump residence? 
Oh, if you're selling encyclopedias, forget it. We have three sets already. No, we're not selling encyclopedias. We're from UNCLE. Please, please come in. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Well, this is really, really, really something. I'm nifty. You know, Marvin and I will, uh... Well, we go to all your basketball games. Did you say basketball? Sure. And and Marvin would have played for your team if he were just a little tiny bit taller. We don't have a team. You must mean UCLA. The Bruins. Didn't you say UCLA? The Inner Sanctum episode, Man of Iron. Five episodes of Mr. Peepers. And from the Night Gallery pilot episode, the segment entitled Escape Route. My proximity to a noisy tramp makes that imperative. <laughs> but if someone were to cut off your fist, how would you ever prove a point? At around the same time, she starred in They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, the sequel to In the Heat of the Night. I can't stand it. Let me go. You're treating him like a fish on a hook. Please. Would you like a cup of coffee? No, uh, no, no, thank you. And the year after that, in 1971, she had what is probably her most recognizable role, that of Golda, Tevye's wife, in Fiddler on the Roof. Hurry, children, hurry. Right, it's getting see. late. Hurry. Protect and defend you. May he always shield you from shame. May you come to be in Israel a shining name. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May you be deserving of praise. Strengthen them, O Lord, and keep them from the strangers' ways. May God bless you and grant you long life. Sabbath prayer for you. May God make you good mothers and wives. Husbands who will care for you. Natalie Wood was one of Norma's closest friends, and when Norma became ill, it was Natalie who paid the medical bills, as well as the eventual funeral costs. Because sadly, Norma Crane died in 1973 of breast cancer. Her obituary in the St. Petersburg Times and her obituary in the New York Times both list her age as 42. But it seems that her actual age was 44. Either way, it's far too short a life. 
Now, I wanted to play two more clips for Norma, because I think they fit in nicely with our discussion of this episode. One of them is from an episode of Man with a Camera, which starred Charles Bronson, in which Norma and Charles play two very different characters than they play here. Wait, Liz! How do you know he's dead? I know. I killed him. No, he's not, Liz. Believe me. You are, Mike. You don't come near me or I jump. Liz, make sure. How do you know? I just know. I knew before he went up. You just thought you knew it. The other is from the thriller episode Dialogues with Death, which also starred Estelle Winwood which seems to have a plot very similar to this Hitchcock episode. Here's Aunt Emily. I bet she'll know me. Well, I declare. Why do you call me Aunt Emily, young man? Sister Emily? I do believe it's Daniel. Our nephew, Daniel. Daniel? Is you really Daniel? You don't mean you forgot your loving youngest nephew. Well, I'm hurt. I'm truly hurt. Why, well, of course you're Daniel. Welcome home, Daniel. We didn't recognize you because you're dead. <laughs> well, thank you. But I'm not dead as you can plainly see. Oh, but you are, boy. You were killed in a holdup in Chicago. The police wired your brother Charles. The police made a little mistake, and I, I found it convenient to let it stand. Oh, well, let me introduce you to my wife, Nell. This is my aunt, Emily Fentress. Hello, Aunt Emily. And this here's my uncle, Colonel Jackson Beauregard Fentress. I'm pleased to meet you, I'm sure. My pleasure, ma'am. Well, uh, Aunt Emily, aren't you going to greet my wife? I was just thinking you're a lovely child. Red hair and green eyes, a true witch girl. What a pity you died so young. What do you mean by that? The dead go with the dead. Daniel is dead, so you must be too. Would you tell her to cut out that dead business? Norma Crane is in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is The Equalizer, episode 19 of season three, in which she, like Charles Bronson in his next one, gets a credit above the title. So just as Norma goes to the telephone, Theodore crosses where she once stood, and the camera follows him to the drugstore counter where he talks to the druggist. The same thing happens when Theodore leaves, only in reverse. Just as he goes past, Norma shows up back from the phone booth, and this time the camera stays with her. It's a nice little touch. But what happens in between those times? Well, the druggist and Theodore have a conversation, and the camera is on Charles's face more than it is on them as he listens in. Morning, Arthur. Morning, Ted. Miss Monica's having another funeral. What, again? Oscar, poor fellow, passed away. Too bad. What did he die of? A croup, I guess, as usual. You know, sooner or later, they're going to have to get somebody in there to take care of Monica Lawton. It's dangerous her living the way she does, all alone, well, with all that money in the house. Well, some folks don't reconcile there's all that much money. Well, she don't ever go to bank. She don't ever get any mail except what she writes to herself. The money don't ever seem to give out. She don't spend much. Maybe it's nearly all gone. Don't you believe it, man. Monica Lawton's got a pile of it stashed away somewhere right in that old house. Maybe so. 
When I was a kid, they used to say her fiancé left her near about a million dollars. <laughs> so long, Arthur. That is a very informative conversation. For one thing, we find out that Monica had a fiancé, but apparently not a husband, who may have left her up to a million dollars. That's what Charles Bronson's character hears. That's what he focuses on. And maybe that's what we focus on, too. But after we know what's going on, some of the other comments are revealing. When Theodore talks about there being another funeral at Monica's house, the druggist, Arthur, says... What, again? When Arthur asks what Oscar died of, Theodore says... Group, I guess, as usual. As usual. So it seems like there might be a pattern here. And Arthur's response to that is... You know, sooner or later, they're going to have to get somebody in there to take care of Monica Lawton. It's dangerous her living the way she does all alone with all that money in the house. That sounds to us, as it does to Charles Bronson, like he's concerned about all the money she has. But he's concerned about a lot more than that, as we will find out shortly. Now, Arthur, the druggist, is played by Emerson Treacy, or perhaps it's pronounced Tracy. Rotten Tomatoes says of him, Emerson Treacy is best remembered for his work in a pair of Little Rascals Our Gang shorts from the year 1933, portraying the father of Spanky McFarland. In point of fact, he was a successful light-leading man and character actor on stage, in movies, and on radio and television, with a career that lasted more than 30 years and took him from comedy on Broadway to roles in the movies of such directors as George Cukor, Joseph Losey, and Alfred Hitchcock. He was Spanky's father in the Little Rascal shorts Bedtime Worries and Wild Poses. As the well-meaning but harried husband and father, he was teamed in both films with Gay Seabrook, the dark-haired, mousy-voiced, zany actress who played Spanky's mother. Treacy and Seabrook were actually a well-known double act on radio and in theater during the early 30s, and their casting as Spanky's parents would have been something of an in-joke at the time. Treacy played in dozens of other feature films, including small roles in Adam's Rib and The Wrong Man, as well as on television programs such as Perry Mason. In Elliot Nugent's rural drama Two Alone, 1934, he's sinister as Milt, the smirking, brutish son-in-law to A.S. Byron's lecherous, taciturn slag, threatening to maim the fleeing young couple as he confronts them, holding a monkey wrench. And in Joseph Losey's The Prowler, 1951, Treacy is almost a comically tragic figure as the good-natured brother of a murder victim who unwittingly helps his killer initially escape justice. He's also in the science fiction theater episode Before the Beginning, the film The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and he's in Gone with the Wind, as well as playing the Justice of the Peace who marries Judy Garland and James Mason in the 1950s version of A Star is Born. Do you... Ernest Sidney Govins, take this woman for your wedded wife. I do. Will you love, comfort, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health as long as you both shall live? I will. Do you, Esther Blodgett, take this man for your wedded husband? I do. Will you obey, serve, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health as long as you both shall live? I will. Now, uh, place the ring on her finger. By virtue of the powers vested in me as Justice of Peace of San Verdo Township, County of Los Angeles, I pronounce you man and wife. So what about his appearance in Hitchcock's The Wrong Man? Well, he's in there as Mr. Wendon of the Associated Life of New York Insurance Company. But it's a pretty small part. Here's the whole thing. She said the way he entered the room was so, so very strange. He, 
He put his hand in his pocket and, and all he took out was this folded paper. He said he just wanted a loan on his wife's policy. Hmm. I'll call the home office. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Emerson Treacy died in 1967 at the age of 66. So that does it for all of the actual people in this episode, except there's one extra standing behind Theodore shopping in the drugstore. I don't know her name. I don't know anything about her. But I see you back there, which is more than you can say for Miss Monica's guests. As Theodore leaves, Norma comes back to Charles and tells him that she couldn't get a hold of her brother. But he's not interested anymore. He has a new plan, and it involves Miss Monica Lawton. So Charles and Norma show up at Miss Monica's house. He's carrying their suitcases. So his scheme of saying he's from the historical society and wants to look at all the historical rooms in the old house doesn't quite jibe. But it doesn't really matter because he never has to use that excuse. Which is a good thing because as Norma says, Now won't they be happy to have the historical society in the middle of a wake? Charles puts his suitcases down and prepares to ring the doorbell. But Monica opens the door before he even touches the doorbell. And come to think of it, she opened the door and said, Morning, Theodore. Before Theodore ever got up to the door. Maybe she's just peering out the window all the time. She is dressed in a floor-length Victorian-looking dress with an elaborate necklace and carrying a very large handbag. Charles introduces himself and his wife to her. Good morning, Miss Lawton. Uh, my name is, is Frank Bramwell, and this here's my wife here. So now we know that Charles's character is Frank Bramwell. But what was his wife's name? Ian? Nell? No, she's Nell in the Thriller episode. Actually, her name is Lorna, which we find out later when Frank says, No, Lorna, we don't want her to talk ever. But that's definitely getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, we're at the front door, and Miss Monica tries to place Frank's last name. Bramwell, Bramwell, I see you brought your luggage, but I don't... We we haven't found a hotel yet, you see. Oh, dear me, you mustn't go to a hotel. None of the family ever go to hotels. What would you think of me? No, we'll find a place for you somewhere. Come in, come in, bring your bags. Everyone's here in the front parlor. You'll want to see Oscar, of course. Bramwell, Bramwell. Oh, of course, Oscar's mother's people. I declare, everyone has been so long trying to forget Oscar's mother. Seems strange to be trying to remember her. So the Bramwells get in, but they are designated part of Oscar's mother's family, the side of the family everybody's trying to forget. And Lorna is very concerned about walking into that big room and meeting all of these people who will probably recognize them as frauds. But when they do enter and Miss Monica introduces them to all concerned, they get a bit of a surprise. Now, these are Oscar's cousins and aunts and things. Mr. Farrell, Miss Nelson, Miss Larrabee, Miss Furlong, Mr. May. Mrs. Archibald, Mr. Archibald, Miss Archibald, Master Archibald, Miss Cicely Furness, Mrs. Lorimer, Mr. Chalmers, Mr. Parkwell, Mr. Pettigrew. Did you get all that? I didn't. There's a few names I can't recognize there. But we do have amongst the attendants Mr. Farrell, Miss Nelson, 
Miss Larrabee, Mr., Mrs., Miss, and Master Archibald, Miss Cicely Furness, who you may recall was Oscar's fiance, Mrs. Lorimer, Mr. Chalmers, and Mr. Pettigrew. There's only one problem with all of this. None of these people are actually there. Every chair is empty. And as Miss Monica introduces the group to the Bramwells, we get just as many shots of them as we do of her. Norma Crane's facial expressions are particularly good throughout this whole episode. And in this particular situation, she's not only surprised, but distressed and a little bit disgusted. Charles Bronson, as Frank, on the other hand, plays it cooler, even as he taps the side of his head to let Lorna know that Miss Monica is crazy. He is scheming. He's trying to figure out how to make this work for him. Miss Monica asks Mr. Farrell to move over one seat to allow the Bramwells to sit down. But does that mean that Mr. Farrell is now sitting in Miss Nelson's lap? When Lorna sits down and Frank sits down next to her, is Frank now sitting on both Mr. Farrell and Miss Nelson's laps? Throughout the episode, Miss Monica is actually quite consistent in her knowledge of her guests, but there are one or two moments, like this one, where she seems perfectly willing to dispense with the illusion if the circumstances dictate it. Another of these situations arises just a few minutes later when Monica talks to Tippy. But first, Monica gives the Bramwells the bad news. I'm afraid we've already had the reading of the will, not knowing you were coming. But it doesn't matter, you didn't get anything. She goes over to comfort Cicely, who apparently is still crying, and then she moves over to another chair to address Tippy. Now, which one is Tippy? Well, Tippy, it turns out, is a cat sitting on the chair occupied by Mr. Chalmers. Perhaps Tippy is sitting on Mr. Chalmers' lap. Or perhaps Monica sees Mr. Chalmers there when she wants to see Mr. Chalmers and Tippy when she wants to see Tippy. Since Tippy was already in that chair as she went around introducing everybody to Frank and Lorna. Now she seems unconcerned about Mr. Chalmers as she chides Tippy. You're getting fat and lazy. You should go to the kitchen and catch the mice. Aha, the mice. When the mice become important later on, don't say they weren't foreshadowed. Monica offers to take the Bramwells to their room, but first she wants to show them Oscar in his casket, as she puts it. Probably changed a good deal since you knew him. And I'll bet he has. We get a close-up of Oscar in his casket, and it's one of the great shots in this entire episode. It's nothing but a pair of pince-nez glasses, a bow tie, a carnation, button studs, and gloves laid out in the coffin in the correct position for his eyes, his neck, his torso, and his hands crossed over his chest. Again, the reactions by the Bramwells are priceless. Frank is still scheming, coolly assessing the situation. Lorna now is nearly physically repulsed. Monica leads them upstairs, but she tells them, Really, it's difficult to know what to do with you. If you had telegraphed, it would have been easier. She goes from room to room, trying to figure out what to do with them, since all the rooms are occupied. Occupied by nobody. Lorna is scared. Monica's lunacy unsettles her. But Frank thinks this is the greatest opportunity they've ever had. So they follow her as she steps into her own bedroom that she is willing to give up to them. So where is she going to sleep? Well, we never find out. But it's possible, once again, that she just uses one of the other bedrooms. Just as Mr. Chalmers becomes tippy when she needs to talk to Tippy, perhaps a bed becomes empty when she needs to use a bed. Once they enter her bedroom, Monica tells the Bramwells, 
A funeral is always so sad when the deceased is young. Ours were all young, all young. Oscar is next to the last. He was the best man. Cicely was the maid of honor. Now they're all gone but Cicely. All the wedding party. Wedding party, huh? And who was the bride? Why, I was. My fiancé was killed in the carriage accident on the way to the church. This is all I have left. It was on the wedding cake. Richard. It's gone. Gone to glory, all of them. Well, there you are. If you need anything, just call. So there it is. Her fiancé, Richard, was killed in a carriage accident on the way to the wedding many years ago. The only thing she has left are the bride and groom from the top of the wedding cake that she keeps under glass. And time has stopped for her. Since Oscar, the recent deceased, was going to be the best man, he certainly can't be young. Though she says he's died young, she says all of them have died young. So it's possible that every single person in that wedding party has actually died of old age and she keeps them alive young to attend their funerals one by one. And it's also possible that all of the people attending Oscar's funeral, Mr. Farrell, Miss Nelson, and so on, were in attendance for Miss Monica's wedding. And it's likely that they're all already gone, too. Now, a lot of this is reminiscent of Miss Havisham from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Living her life in the gloom, wearing her corroding wedding dress day by day, with the wedding feast and the crumbling wedding cake still sitting on a table. This is from chapter 22. The marriage day was fixed. The wedding dresses were bought. The wedding tour was planned out. The wedding guests were invited. The day came, but not the bridegroom. He wrote her a letter. Which she received, I struck in, when she was dressing for her marriage at 20 minutes to nine. At the hour and minute, said Herbert, nodding at which she afterwards stopped all the clocks. What was in it, further than that it most heartlessly broke the marriage off, I can't tell you, because I don't know. When she recovered from a bad illness that she had, she laid the whole place waste as you have seen it, and she has never since looked upon the light of day. It's possible that the fact that Miss Monica's fiancé died on the way to the wedding, rather than jilting her, has saved her from Miss Havisham's more bitter fate. But still, it's a tragic tale, and you can see the emotion welling up in her whenever she recalls it. But the Bramwells don't care. They're smiling and laughing when they see how opulent the bedroom is, how ripe for the picking. And as soon as Miss Monica leaves, they start to ransack the room. We get a dissolve to show that time has passed, and they really have torn the room apart. Frank is even pulling up the mattress at this point when Miss Monica enters. Oh, Frank, for the hundredth time, I'm hungry. Oh, shut up. We'll find the money, then we'll eat. Oh! You are untidy. Must you scrabble through my room like monkeys? Where's the money? That's why we're here, and that's what we're going to get. Oh, so you came only after poor Oscar's money. You admit it. Well, I told you he didn't leave you anything. Oh, Dear, dear, dear. Uh, we'll straighten it up, Miss Lawton. Uh, is it time for lunch? Lunch is over. We had it while you were up here hunting for Oscar's will. I told you we'd already read it. Besides, why should he leave it in my room? Mr. and Mrs. Bramwell, 
I don't think you're going to add anything to the occasion. I think you'd better go. Now, if you need some money, I can let you have a little. Now, what did I do with my purse? Really? Even as she says this, she opens up that big purse, which is hanging right there on her arm. But then she closes it right up again. So she apparently has some money in her purse. But Frank and Lorna don't pick up on this. Lorna, in particular, is so hungry that she asks if she can go down to have something to eat, even though lunch is over. And Miss Monica says, of course. So Frank and Lorna go excitedly running down the stairs to the kitchen. Lorna opens the icebox. Frank looks in one of the cupboards. And they don't find much. Can you beat that? There's nothing in here but some stale cheese and more milk and a can of lard. Well, this ought to go tasty with the cheese. Here, look at that. It's just about as old. That's a piece of bread that Frank has found. Seems to be about as hard as a brick. Lorna wonders whether there's any money in the house at all. But Frank is sure there is. What with the flowers around the coffin, Monica's jewelry, the furniture. He's sure she's wealthy. But all Lorna can think about is food. Oh, but I am so hungry. You always have to talk about food here. Well, how can I talk about anything else I haven't eaten since yesterday? But Frank has. He had that Danish and that cup of coffee at the drugstore. So what does that tell you about that relationship? Just then the phone rings. Oh, do be quiet. It knows I never answer it, but it's so persistent lately. I only had it put in to please Oscar, but now that he's gone, there's no need for it. I told the postman to tell the telephone company to come and take it away, but they haven't done it, I suppose. They still ring up to argue about it. So who would be calling Miss Monica? I have no idea, because she doesn't answer the phone. It's a strange little moment. I'm not sure why it's even there. But she, meanwhile, has more bad news for Frank and Lorna. I have decided to postpone the funeral because I don't think Oscar would like fortune hunters to be present, so we won't have it till after you are gone. They will have the dinner, though, she says. And when she runs down the list of what will be served, Frank is so overcome that he throws his piece of bread away. Melon first, then the capon, rice, butter beans, salad. Well, I hope Elvira won't forget the Roquefort. Charlotte Russe, coffee. And the champagne. Oh, yes, we might as well have the champagne. It will comfort Sicily, poor dear. The Bramwells are definitely going to stay for that dinner. At this point, that's the only thing on Lorna's mind. But Frank's mind is still on that money. And this is the moment I flashed forward to before, where Frank uses Lorna's name for the first and only time. No, Lorna, we don't want her to talk ever. What do you mean, Frank? Now, we don't... Now, wait a minute. We don't know anybody in this town, and nobody knows that we're here, or that we have any connection with Miss Monica Lawton, right? Mm-hmm. So? No, I don't like it. What's the matter with you? The only way we can get caught is if we leave that old goof alive to talk. Now, you want to take a chance like that just for a dippy old dame that don't know what from down? Let me go. I don't know, it's just that we've never been in anything like this before. Well, we are in it, and we're going to go through with it, do you understand? Look, that old dame, she's lived long enough anyhow. So just like that, Frank is willing to become a murderer. Lorna feels differently about it, but she doesn't do anything to stop it. 
As the pie lady says, she's not good, but she could be if she weren't with Frank. We return from the commercial break to find Frank going through all sorts of papers in an old desk, which also appears to be in the living room. Miss Monica comes in and seems to have forgotten that the Bramwells have been exiled from the party. Will you take me in, Mr. Bramwell? Go on, just so long as we eat. Miss Lawton? Thank you, Mr. Bramwell. They enter the dining room where the table is nicely laid out with crystal glasses and crystal bowls with a bottle of champagne in an ice bucket on the side and a candelabra with lit candles in it. Miss Monica has to have laid this table herself, but again, no mention of that. She tells all her guests where they should sit. Cicely, use it here next to me, dear. <coughs> Mr. Chalmers will let you sit on my other side and uh, Mrs. Archibald, next. Mr. May, Miss Archibald. Mr. Farquhar, Miss Thurlough, and uh, Mr. Archibald. Now on this side is Mr. Farrell, Miss Nelson, Master Archibald, Miss Larrabee, Mr. Pettigrew. Mrs. Larimer. Oh, yes, Mr. and Mrs. Branwell. I thought you had gone. There's still one name I can't quite catch there, but I think that two of the others were Mr. May and Mr. Farquaad. But now there aren't enough chairs for the Bramwells. Frank has had enough of this. He just pushes Lorna down into one of the chairs, and he takes another one himself. He is in Mr. Archibald's seat. Lorna is in the seat of the one name I can't quite catch. And this is another example where Miss Monica adapts. She looks flummoxed for a moment as the Bramwells sit in other people's seats. Then she shrugs and she moves on. Now, my dears, you mustn't mind me. Just go ahead and enjoy Envara's wonderful cooking. The doctor has told me I must be very careful for a while, but I shall enjoy watching you eat. And it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to find out there's no Elvira, and the only thing sitting on the table besides the dishes and silverware is Tippy the cat. Oh, except Miss Monica has a bowl of soup. Elvira has been with us ever since I was just a little girl. No, thank you, Elvira. No, you can't tempt me. The doctor was firm, very firm. Just a little soup, he said. For a while, just a little soup. So maybe there really was an Elvira at some point that was with the family ever since Miss Monica was a little girl. But that was a long time ago. Realizing they're not going to get anything if they just sit there, Frank and Lorna take advantage of the imaginary Elvira. You may bring in the capo now, Elvira. I'm going to help Elvira. Thank you, Mrs. Bradwell, but I'm quite sure I'll just help Elvira open this. Frank grabs the champagne bottle, and he and Lorna race into the kitchen where they eat as much of the soup sitting on the stove as they can. Then Frank opens the champagne and takes a big swig and gets a big surprise. It's vinegar! Vinegar! She must have had a hundred years to start sour! I'm gonna kill that little... Oh, Frank, remember, she is not responsible! That's all. That's all I'm gonna take from that old dame. I'm gonna go in there and work on her right now. 
Frank pulls a jackknife out of his pocket and opens it up, and he heads out to confront Miss Monica. Lorna, again, doesn't like it, but she doesn't do anything about it. And we get a crossfade to the close-up of a portrait, some family member with a big mustache, up on the wall, as it turns out that there's a safe behind that portrait. Frank sticks his knife in Miss Monica's face and orders her to open that safe. Monica eyes the knife very carefully and decides... I will open it if you'll promise not to destroy any of my private papers. I promise. What do I care about the papers? Open it. Well, I suppose the only way to convince you is to open it. Really, this is very presumptuous of you. There. Now, remember. What's all this junk in here? Where's the money? Look at that. Fans, dance programs, and valentines. A safe full of moldy junk. Oh, how could you? You promised. You promised you wouldn't. Frank throws all of her letters and memorabilia on the floor. And this is just a heartbreaking moment as Miss Monica bends down and recovers them all. It's clear that this is what she values. This is what goes in the safe. Not her money, which is... Well, we'll get to where that is. Mr. Branwell, you've made me very angry. You're a man without honor. I've been trying to forget you, but you've made that impossible. I will never tell you where anything is. I will tell you only this, that there is no money here for you. You want to die? You kill me. I couldn't possibly tell you anything, could I? I'll kill you anyhow. Do as you please, Mr. Bramwell. But please refrain from annoying my guests if you can. And it's at that moment that Frank decides to play her game her way and take advantage of it. I'll kill them too. Oh, no, no, you mustn't. Now, if you don't tell me where that money is, I'm going to kill every one of them, every single one. No, no, you mustn't, you mustn't harm them. Oh, uh, give me till morning. I must think. You had enough time to think. Now! Frank, wait. Now, now it may take forever to find it if she doesn't tell us. Now, give her till morning. I think you've really got her scared now. Okay. I'm gonna give you till morning. And then if you don't dig up that money, I'm gonna kill every one of these people, and you too. This is Lorna's one successful effort in getting Frank to be a little more merciful. And it doesn't end well for them, because giving Miss Monica until morning allows her to do what we've seen her do several times before, adapt to the situation. And so we come to the next morning in the kitchen, where Tippy has his head in a bowl of batter. No, 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 Tippy. Tippy, you've had all you're going to have. Why, you're positively bulging. No, no, besides, you know you don't like cupcakes. These are for the mice. Remember the mice? We had a foreshadowing of the mice. Now then, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, a great big cat like you, letting the mice stamp all over the kitchen as though they owned the place. Where did I put that rat poison? They may as well die happy. And they do love cupcakes. They might as well die happy, and they do love cupcakes. Is she talking about the mice? Well, she thinks she's talking about the mice. 
She pours far too much rat poison into that little bit of batter. And it isn't long after that Lorna, upstairs, smells the cupcakes baking. Frank, Frank, wake up! There's the most marvelous smell coming from downstairs. I think she's in the kitchen cooking. They go running down the stairs as they did earlier in the episode. Very excited. And the music is really excited this time. But just like last time, when they get to the kitchen, they run into a disappointment. Except now, there are cupcakes. Good morning. Is breakfast ready? Breakfast is over long ago. Do you always sleep this late? Late? It's only seven. Isn't there any more coffee? Oh, no, I don't drink coffee. Elvira will probably find you something to eat. Wait a minute. You had all night to think about it. Now dig up that money. No stalling around or I go in and kill all those people. You're too late, Mr. Bramwell. They've gone. I sent them all away last night. I told them it wasn't safe with a lunatic like you in the house. What do you mean they're gone? No, they ain't gone. Frank, have you gone crazy too? It seems like he has, because he heads out to take a look to see if the people are gone. Meanwhile, Lorna tries to grab one of the cupcakes, and Miss Monica slaps her hand away. Oh, those are for the mice. And so are you, you old goof. Do you dig up that money right now, or do I use this on you? I haven't quite decided. I'm going into the parlor and talk to Richard. Maybe he'd like me to join him. What'd I tell you? I knew she'd see it our way. <laughs> they each grab a cupcake. Frank even clinks his cupcake against Lorna's as if toasting with wine glasses. Because, as Miss Monica said, they may as well die happy. The scene shifts to Miss Monica's front door, just as it was at the beginning of the episode. Only now there are two black wreaths instead of one. And just as in the beginning, Miss Monica comes out her front door, and Theodore the Milkman comes up the walk. Morning, Theodore. Morning, Miss Monica. Oh, you had another death in the family. I'm afraid so, Theodore. Most disconcerting, especially with no accommodations. Ma'am? I want you to take a message for me. Tell Mr. Grimley I want him to send me a new coffin right away. His best, his very best. A coffin? You, you want another... Oh, you had two deaths in the family. Mm, not the immediate family. Distant cousins. But we must do our best. Oh, your bill. Well, I'll, I'll pay it right away. Oh, there's no hurry, Miss Monica. Oh, I know I've got a $5 bill here. She opens up that big handbag she's been carrying for the whole episode, and it is stuffed full of money. Fake TV play money, granted. But in the context of the episode, it is very real money. And this reminds us of the moment when Miss Monica told Frank and Lorna. Now, if you need some money, I can let you have a little. Now, what did I do with my purse? A nice foreshadowing of the twist in the tale. Well, Theodore, take this $1,000 bill. You can bring me the change tomorrow. There were $1,000 bills at one time. There were also $500, $5,000, $10,000, and $100,000 bills. Grover Cleveland was on the $1,000 bill. Theodore takes the $1,000 bill in hand, but he's a good soul. He's not going to take advantage of her, and he's concerned about her. Oh, oh, good gosh, Miss Monica, you shouldn't keep all that money in your purse like that. That's an awful lot of money. It's the safest place in the world, Theodore. 
It's the safest place in the world. Good day, Fairtop. Uh, good day, Miss Monica. She goes back inside and closes the door, and we're left with the same shot we started with. A black wreath on the door. Now, in his review of this episode, Jack Seabrook asks, Does Monica intend to poison the Bramwells? I do not think so. Cockrell's script sets up the ending carefully, as two facts are brought up repeatedly throughout the story. Monica has a mouse problem, and the Bramwells are very hungry. True, it is bizarre that she makes poisonous cupcakes for mice, but she does tell Mrs. Bramwell that the baked goods are for the rodents, not for her. The fact that the Bramwells eat them and die horrible deaths off-screen hardly seems to be the fault of the old woman. And what exactly does happen to the Bramwells? Presumably they die from eating rat poison, and Monica chooses to proceed with a wake for them, even though it means dealing with real corpses rather than imaginary ones. Monica must be a woman of great resources to be able to deal with their dead bodies, though one wonders what she will do with them after she holds a wake that will surely be attended by more imaginary friends. In translating the story of Monica Lawton from the page to the small screen, Stevenson has trouble striking a balance between tragedy and comedy and seems to have chosen to emphasize the comic elements of the story, which results in the show having an uneven tone. And the pie lady says, This episode, I just love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. And I tend to agree with the pie lady more than Jack here. Robert Stevenson certainly emphasizes the comic over the tragic, but there are still moments of tragedy and suspense in this episode. Miss Monica's story of her wedding night is very sad, and it breeds her very sad delusions. But as Miss Monica herself says, Well, there you are. If you need anything, just call. And she soldiers on in her loopiness. In fact, it is that very loopiness that saves her from Frank, who is a very dangerous man, and those moments with him threatening her with his knife are very dangerous, suspenseful moments. Lorna, while apparently more sympathetic, is really no better. Miss Monica is in very real danger here, and it is her eccentricities, her imaginary friends, her imaginary food, her making poisoned cupcakes for mice, her money in her handbag, that ultimately save her as Frank and Lorna get their just desserts. No pun intended. Okay, okay, pun very definitely intended. So I don't see this as an uneven tone. I see it as a battle of wills between two worldviews, both of which, interestingly enough, involve death. Frank's dark, violent realism is foisted upon Miss Monica's lighter, loopy life filled with funeral services. It's a tug of war, and the tone of the episode reflects whomever is ahead at any given time. So that when Frank threatens Miss Monica with his knife, the tone is very serious. But when Miss Monica counters, saying she sent all her guests away, the tone becomes comic. And since Miss Monica ultimately wins, comedy ultimately wins. And we get that loopy comic music at the end. <laughs> Now, all of the actors are terrific here, but Estelle Winwood, in particular, really shines. She can be odd and unsettling, but she's clearly so kind and so giving within her world of delusion that she becomes so very sympathetic. I mean, just look at that imaginary feast she was giving to her imaginary guests. After all, is it her fault that two real people have intruded upon her hospitality? And her dialogue is terrific. In fact, all of the dialogue in this episode is terrific. 
We can't read the story, but if the story is as crisp and clever as the teleplay, I'm surprised it never got published. We've seen Marion Cockrell in two previous teleplays. Neither one is on my list of favorites, but this one is a gem. Now, I do agree with Jack that Miss Monica would have a very hard time lugging two real bodies to two coffins. And what happens to the bodies after that? This scenario doesn't seem to have a very good ending for her, which belies our happy ending. But it doesn't bother me that much. Sometimes for me, a story goes beyond the events, and sometimes I'm happy to have the story end with the story. So let's leave Monica happily loopy with her bag full of money and take it no further than that. Time, I think, for the third Hitchcock story from the Henley Telegraph, reprinted by Patrick McGilligan in his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light. This one is entitled Sordid, S-O-R-D-I-D, though it will soon become clear that it's also a play on Sordid, S-W-O-R-D-E-D. It is not for sale, sir. Through a friend, I had heard of a Japanese dealer in Chelsea who had a remarkable collection of English and Japanese antiques. And, being a keen collector, I had made my way to his shop to look over his curious stock. The sword, a fine heavy specimen with a chased blade and elaborate handle, was not very ancient, perhaps about 20 years old, but it had attracted me. I will give you a good price. I am sorry, but I do not wish to sell. There must have been something unusual about it, and so I became more fascinated and determined to obtain the sword. After much expostulating and protesting, he agreed to sell on the promise that I would purchase other things in the near future. There is some history connected with this, is there not? I asked. Yes, there is, and if you have time, I will tell it to you. At the time of the Russo-Japanese War, Kiyosuma, his son, was an ambitious lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army. It chanced that once Kiyosuma was charged with the dispatch of documents to a destination back in Japan, which took him near his home. On the journey, he failed to notice that he was being followed by two men, Russian agents. His home was about an hour's journey short of his ultimate destination, so he decided he would call there first. As he alighted from the train, a feeling of delight enveloped him when he thought of the surprise that he would give his parents. He made his way up the hill of the little village beyond which his parents lived, his path lying through a wood. He quickened his step with the excitement of anticipation until, almost within sight of his house, he heard a step behind him. Turning, he saw an arm raised, then came oblivion. It was night when he regained consciousness, and as he struggled to his feet, he endeavored to collect his dazed thoughts. Then he remembered. The papers! What should he do? With the papers gone! He staggered towards his house, the lights of which were discernible through the trees, and was met by his father. O oh, son, from whence came thou? Kiyosuma proceeded to explain with difficulty. The brow of his father darkened, his eyes narrowed, and his face grew to that of a mask. O oh, unworthy one, thou hast betrayed the trust of the great Nippon. Where now is thy honor? But my father, they have not the code. Thou dare to excuse thyself? Take the sword. Thou knowest the only course. Slowly, but fearlessly, Kiyosuma proceeded to his room. He laid a white sheet on the floor and placed a candle at each corner. Then, having robed himself in a white kimono, he knelt down and cast his eyes upwards. He raised the sword with the point to his heart, and... I took the sword home and in the firelight continued to examine my purchase while I pondered over the strange tale of the afternoon. I noticed that the handle was a little loose. Perhaps it unscrewed. 
I tried it with success and detached the blade. Lowering it to the firelight, I studied the unpolished surface and read, Made in Germany, 1914. Let's continue our look at Hitchcock's earliest films, with his third for which he designed the titles, Appearances, 1921. It was directed by Donald Crisp, who started as an actor in D.W. Griffith films. He turned to directing, but he turned back to acting in the 1930s. When asked why he did that, Crisp commented that directing had become extremely wearisome because he was so often called upon, if not forced, to do favors for studio chiefs by agreeing to employ their relatives in his films. He's a very recognizable face, and perhaps is best known for his role in How Green Was My Valley, for which he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. I can't find much about appearances itself. This is what it said on the poster. A drama of sham and pretense, and the folly that led two thoughtless people to the brink of destruction, and the great heart story of a man who renounced happiness to save the girl he loved. A tale which turns the pitiful struggle for existence into the joyous game of life. They don't write them like that anymore, but on the other hand, it sounds like any one of dozens of these silent films from the 20s. There is this one review on the Hitchcock Zone website from Picturegoer magazine, and it says, There are many good points about appearances. First famous Lasky British production directed by Donald Crisp. The plot, which concerns the dire results of living beyond one's means with the mistaken idea of keeping up appearances, is well developed. The cast is good and well selected and the exterior is carefully chosen. Some of the interior sets, too, are magnificent, and a special care has been taken with the costumes. A well-staged motor accident and some clever double exposure work are other noticeable features. The photography and lighting are good all the way through Donald Crisp, who has been associated with motion pictures since early biograph days, directed his first film for that company. This was The Idiot, he has since acted in and directed hosts of features and is now definitely settled this side. But not so fast. Appearances, like The Great Day and The Call of Youth before it, is a lost film. And finally, here's another episode of... Ingrid, it's only a movie. There are so many interesting clips in the Omnibus Hitchcock program, some of which do not put Hitchcock in a very good light. This is Rodney Ackland, co-author of the film, number 17. There was a pop of handcuffs, and um, one night, just before we finished shooting, Hitch, Bet, little pop man, who I called Fred, I forget what his name was really, that he wouldn't have the handcuffs locked on him and stay all night in the studio, bet him ten pounds. Well, he agreed and did stay all night handcuffed in the studio, but... Before being left alone there, he'd be given by Hitch quite a strong laxative in his tea. So I won't go into what the results were. I can only imagine them and be sorry for wretched Fred. Here's Hitch to lead us out. Ah, well, as the French tell us, c'est la mort. I thought rat poison was charmingly appropriate, didn't you? After all, sweets to the sweet. And I can think of no better time to segue into our next theme. After which, I'll segue back to you. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Murder by Death, The Producers, Batman, The Second Season, Bewitched, Seasons 3 and 4, Twilight Zone, The Complete First Season, Fiddler on the Roof, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, Saturday Night Live, The Complete First Season, 1975 to 1976, 
I Want to Live, A Star is Born, and The Wrong Man are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Old Woman Who Lived in the Shoe song, The Old Woman All Skin and Bone song, The Old Woman Tossed Up in a Blanket song, The Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly song, Eddie Fisher Singing Without You, The Lennon Sisters Singing Shake Me, I Rattle, Squeeze Me, I Cry, Simon Dupree and the Big Sound Doing Kites, Let's Go Mets, The Thriller Episode Dialogues with Death, The Man with the Camera Episode Another Barrier, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 clip Ode on Estelle, and Omnibus Hitchcock are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode number 26, Who Done It? Starring John Williams. The opinions expressed by my sponsor are his. He looks to his left and then to his right to see if anyone is watching him. Then he looks back at us and he shrugs. Those of you who wish may join us again next week when we'll be back with another play. Good night.